How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins, and the instant we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we're saved. We can never lose our salvation. However, we still sin, and whenever we sin, we break fellowship with God, just as a disobedient child uh, breaks fellowship with his parents when they're disobedient, and yet they are not kicked out of the family. So we are still members of the family of God, and we have... Uh, we can't lose that, but we do have to recover fellowship whenever we sin. So the principle is given in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together this evening to study your word. We thank you for the way it illuminates our thinking, provides us accuracy in every area of life, and gives us that framework for thought. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening, we would uh, be able to concentrate and focus, that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we can see how these things apply to our own thinking and our own lives. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Romans 1. Romans 1. Now, what we're doing, what we've been doing for the last five or six weeks, or maybe it's been seven weeks, I lose count, is a review of what we've done in our study of Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis Genesis as an entirety, as the whole book, can be divided into two sections. The first section deals with events, second section with people. Four events lead up to four to the study of four people. The four events are the creation, fall, flood, and Tower of Babel. The four people are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now there's a structure, as I've said again and again in our study of Genesis, to the book of Genesis, 50 chapters. The first 11 chapters of Genesis deal with these four events. And the next 39 chapters deal with the four people. So where is the Holy Spirit putting the emphasis? It's on the people. The emphasis is on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. The emphasis is on what God is doing in calling out a new people to himself through Abraham in, at the end of Genesis 11 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. This marks a major shift in the way God is dealing with the human race. Now, tonight is really our introduction to Abraham. 
We And still some review on the first part, but primarily an introduction, a stage setting for the life of Abraham. Why is it that God calls out Abraham? Why is God, why is it necessary for God to call out a new people and instead of working with the entirety of the human race as he did in the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis, why is it that God now works through one family, through one man initially and through that family? Why does God restrict himself to working through Israel, the nation Israel, those who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And the first 11 chapters of Genesis answer that question for us. Because of what transpires in those chapters, there is a necessity for God to, as it were, change his game plan and to work through one individual And that is an expression of God's grace. God's grace to all of humanity is exhibited in his decision to work through this one individual, uh, Abraham. What we've seen in the first 11 chapters of Genesis is that God creates everything perfect. God's a perfect God. What he creates is perfect. He creates a perfect environment. He creates man uh, perfect and sinless, and places man in the perfect environment of the Garden of Eden and gives him a test. And this is the focal point of the original creation, is that test, how man would, would use his volition, how he would operate under the principle of personal responsibility and accountability. And we studied that under the category of divine institutions, that in Genesis, in these first 11 chapters, God establishes the five divine institutions, and these are true. These are principles that are true for every human being, whether they are a Christian, a non-Christian, whether uh, whatever the culture is. These principles are designed for the preservation, uh, perpetuation, and uh, of, of mankind, and for their protection. And the first divine institution is that of personal responsibility and accountability, that we are all accountable to God for our actions and that our actions and our choices have consequences. And we never know how serious the consequences will be from what may appear to be minor uh, choices or minor actions. And what God is teaching in the principle here is that man is created in the image and likeness of God and man can only have success in life and meaning in life and happiness in life if he is fulfilling his uh, role as the image of God. And by image of God, we don't merely mean a representation of God, but a representative of God. The image was one that was to represent, uh, was to represent God in his role over creation. So man has a subordinate role, subordinate to the authority of God, and he rejects that. When Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they rejected divine authority. It was that act of rejection of divine authority that dominoed throughout history and throughout the universe in terms of all kinds of horrible consequences. The penalty for their sin was that they were um, they became spiritually dead, separated from God. 
That's the penalty. The consequence of that penalty was that it changed everything in the universe. It changed physical laws. It changed botany so that there were now thistles and thorns in the garden. It changed the environment. It changed uh, the animal kingdom so that they, there was now antagonism in the animal kingdom and there were, and carnivores gradually developed uh, uh, over that period. And everything was affected by sin. And this is what God's teaching through the angelic conflict, that the creature can't live independently from the Creator. So we saw the creation, we saw the fall, the impact from the fall, and then things deteriorate. We see the that it's not long before there's murder in the very first generation. Cain kills his brother Abel, and there's a deterioration from one generation to the next until we read that that man is doing evil continuously at the time at the generation of the flood so that you only have a a few people who are following God you only have a few people who are obedient to God and in terms of the spiritual life of that pre-flood or antediluvian period there is complete rebellion against God there's a, 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 a demonic infiltration which we studied that threatens the genetic purity of the human race, all of which sounds pretty bizarre to us. But as a result of that, God preserves the human race. And so the flood is an act of God's grace. It's, a, it's an act of God's grace in that it is preserving uh, the pure element of the human race through whom eventually the seed promised to Adam and Eve will come. And it is that seed that, that culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, and will go to the cross and, as a true human being, the second Adam, who, because of the virgin birth, is born sinless, and therefore it does not inherit Adam's sin, is not condemned on the basis of Adam's sin, and is and because of his own life where he never sins, he's qualified to go to the cross and die on the cross for us, die on the cross on our behalf so that we can be saved, so that salvation is available to the human race. The flood emphasizes God's grace. It emphasizes judgment. It emphasizes that God is the one who sets the terms for salvation, not man. It may not seem right to us, but Proverbs says that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. That we have to listen to God because He is the Creator, and so He is the one who has designed things the way they are. Operating on limited, finite knowledge, we just don't know how things are. So Genesis 6 through 9 describes the events of the flood. Then we come to Genesis 9, 10, and 11. And this is really a unit that must be understood together from the post-fall, I mean post-flood situation where Noah, where this bizarre incident where Noah plants a vineyard, gets drunk, uh, passes out naked in his tent. His son uh, uh, Ham comes in, treats him with disrespect, and then goes and laughs about it with his brother Shem and Ham, but I mean Shem and Japheth. But they treat their father with respect, and they go in and cover him up. And the Holy Spirit gives us two events between the flood and Abraham, which is a period of about a little over 400 years. Between In that period of time, 
the Holy Spirit gives us, really tells us about two things that happen. And that is fundamental to understand what, what, what it's setting up for Adam. I mean, for, uh, for Abraham. The first event is the, the episode with Noah. And unfortunately, we run into too many pastors and too many preachers, too many theologians who forget the fact that we're sinners. And even after salvation, we're still sinners. And they just try to justify what happens with Noah here. But Noah gets drunk. He gets drunk. I think it's either intentional and maybe accidental. But uh, I had one individual tell me not long ago that, well, Noah was a righteous man. That's what it says in Genesis 6. So he wouldn't have knowingly drunk wine. He got surprised that the grape juice turned into wine. You know, there's nothing to substantiate that. The The thing that we see structurally in the book of Genesis is, as I've gone over and over again, is that the writer uses this phrase, this is the history of, this is the genealogy of, this is the descendants of, of, um, of the universe, of Adam, of Noah, of uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, of, of Shem. These set your structural markers. And each one of these sections, which we call a toledot section based on the Hebrew word there that's translated genealogy or history. These toledot sections all begin with the human, with, with, all begin with something good and they deteriorate into something worse. We start off, the first one is the universe. And God has created the universe, the heavens and the earth perfect. And then starting in Genesis 1-4, we have the statement, this is the generation of the heavens and the earth. And by the end, we have man has fallen, we have the murder of, of Abel, and man has deteriorated. Then we start off with Adam. Boom. And Adam deteriorates from go, going from Adam, who of course is in a, a state of sin, fallen now, but then man, man is continually doing evil all the time by the time you get just before the flood. Then you have Noah, the generation of Noah. Boom. When you get down to the end of the generation of Noah, which is in the post-flood environment, it's deteriorated. Then it starts off after the flood, and we have the, the generation of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and it deteriorates down to the Tower of, of Babel. So there's this constant deterioration that takes place in each of these things, and what's in each of these sections. And what the writer is emphasizing is the consequences of sin, the consequences of total depravity on the human race, that the human race has fallen and that there is this constant, continuous historical trend from a better state to a worse state. And you can't get away from it. It always happens. And you can't slip into any form of, of idealism and thinking that somehow we can miraculously uh, come up with some some magic bullet to to reverse this. The only solution is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's salvation, putting your faith alone in Christ alone, and ultimately when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. And so we see this pattern. So Noah, of course, it starts off after the flood, but he's still a sinner. That's the point in that little weird little episode. Noah is still a sinner, and not only that, but his sons are corrupt also. And the Holy Spirit uses this incident to show that these three progenitors of the human race, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, each have certain 
uh, personality characteristics that are that that reveal and foreshadow the major trends of their descendants throughout history. And we studied that. Genesis 10 then gets into that episode of the Table of Nations where the writer describes the descendants of those three sons, starting with Japheth and then Ham and then uh, then Shem. And again, it's showing the, the theme of each one ends with a phrase, for example, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 5, from these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, uh, according to their families, into their nations. See, at the beginning of this, when they came off the ark, there were just Noah and his wife, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. Eight people, and they all spoke the same language. They were all the same family. But by the end of this period, you have languages, tribes, uh, families, and nations. Everybody's divided up. And there's, there's hostility, and the result of that is, and, and I, excuse me, that is the result of what took place at the Tower of Babel. So as I pointed out last time, Japheth, the descendants of Japheth, start off, and you just have four short verses giving those descendants, and then you're, you're, you're done with Japheth. In fact, he is following the principle of being enlarged, which is given in, in Noah's uh, prophecy there in uh, 927, may God enlarge Japheth. And that has to do with his expansion. And it's not that the others don't expand out throughout the whole world, but Japheth's geographical expansion is extremely fast. And he is spreading out, and he's going basically, one group heads northwest into Europe, and the other group heads southeast towards uh, Persia and India. These are the Aryan or the Indo-European people. Then we have the descendants of Ham mentioned in Genesis 10, uh, 7, or starting in verse 6 down through verse 20. And that concludes with a similar statement. It's a little different, but it says basically the same thing. These were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. And so uh, uh, it starts off, the, the, the order's a little different. Uh, families, languages, lands, and nations. And, uh, but <clears throat> that has to do with how they were spread out, e- e- emphasis and more extension of families. But with, um, in that description of Ham, you have a sidebar. And that's given, in, as we pointed out, in verses 8 through 11, where you talk about Nimrod, and Nimrod's establishment of his kingdom in Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, and Shinar. And so you have this, this sidebar note on Nimrod. Then in the structure of the table, the next person whose descendants are covered is Shem. And there's one little sidebar, it's briefer than the one on Nimrod, given in verse 25. And it mentions Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. So you have Peleg, and Peleg is a contemporary of Nimrod. What's this all about? Well, Genesis 10 is explaining the dispersion of mankind, and in typical Hebrew narrative, it gives you the overview. So you have this, this overview of the table in chapter 10. And then 
chapter 11, 1 through 9, comes in and gives us details about what causes the expansion in chapter 10. It's the same kind of parallel that you see in Genesis 1 and 2. And you will have liberal theologians come along and say, see, this represents two different accounts. No, it doesn't represent two different accounts. It represents a typical pattern of Hebrew uh, narrative. You give the whole picture, summary picture, and then you come back in and you give a, a snapshot of one incident within that picture. So chapter 11, 1 through 9, describes the Tower of Babel. And it is what the rebellion at the Tower of Babel, man uniting with one language against God, that it gives the, mecha, the reason for the scattering that occurs in chapter 10. So Nimrod and Peleg are only about the fourth or fifth generation down from, uh, from Noah. And it's at that time that the languages are, are confused and people are scattered. Now, what happens is that Babel then becomes a picture or what, what is called a type. A type is from the Greek word tupos, meaning an example. It is a, an incident in history that foreshadows something that happens later on. And it can be a thing, it can be a person, or it can be an event. And this event is a picture of what happens to the to mankind in rebellion against God that man that the nations of of human history cannot survive unless they are in obedience to God this is the principle and remember the setting here genesis is part, is really the first chapter so to speak in a five chapter book and that five chapter book we call the pentateuch p e n t meaning five the Pentateuch, the first five books of, Gen- uh, of, of the Bible, also called the Torah, all written by Moses, written to provide the foundation for the new Jewish nation. After the Exodus, they have left Egypt. They have gone through the 40 years of discipline and wandering in the wilderness, and they are on the verge of entering into the promised land of Canaan that God has given to them. And as they are on the verge of entry, part of the what is happening here is that uh, Moses is providing a reason for why God is doing this. Why are, are you a special nation? Why are you a special people? What is God doing through you? Why has God given you the, this Mosaic law? Why has God called you out uh, above all of the other peoples on the earth? And the answer is related to what happens at Babel. Babel sets up and begins to crystallize what we will call, and what the Bible calls actually, the world system. And this world system is that which dominates human history, dominates all nations, all peoples that are in rebellion against God. And in contrast to that, you have God calling out one individual, Abram or Avram in the Hebrew, Abram. And it is through Abram that God is going to work to counter the world system, that God is going to eventually through the seed, the promised seed of Avram, who is Jesus Christ, he is going to provide a salvation that will in turn come back to redeem the world. John 3.16, For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And what happens with God's judgment on the Tower of Babel is in grace, God begins to work through one individual because the nations, in their volition, the peoples have turned their back on God. And this is the picture that we see. Last time I was setting the stage for this, and we went through Romans 1. Romans 1 is Paul's exposition of of what happens, what happened historically. And I just want to hit a couple of high points. This explains what took place after the flood, that they knew God existed. You have eight people that came off the ark. They knew everything that had happened. They had been on the ark. They had witnessed the flood. They had... Uh, they had witnessed the fact that God had closed and sealed the door on the ark. When they got on the boat, God sealed it. They didn't close the door and shut it. God did. God protected them and preserved them. And I'm sure, although we don't have any um, testimony to it in the Word of God, that there were times when they knew that they were going to die. And God delivered them during that time, and God protected them. And when they came off the ark, they they were witnesses to the covenant that God made with Noah. This was a verbal audio covenant. If you had had your uh, tape recorder there, your MP3 player there, you could have uh, recorded the voice of God. You could have videoed God establishing this covenant with Noah. It was a real objective historical event. And these three men, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all knew that. But yet within just three or four generations, their descendants were setting themselves up in antagonism to God, shaking their fist, as it were, against God, and creating alternate deities. This is what happens to the human heart that is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. This is our condition. We are lousy, rotten sinners, every single one of us, and this is our tendency. This is our propensity And left to our own devices, it is a downhill slide. Romans 1 describes that, talking about the fact that the judgment of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, literally who hold the truth by means of unrighteousness. That is, they're they're spinning the truth so that they can uh, take it, rework it, wrap it up in terms of their own mythology and their own explanation for origins and human history. Uh, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. God makes it clear. Every human being knows and comes to a point of God consciousness and knows God exists. For God has shown it to them. It's manifest in them internally, and it is expressed to them externally through the creation. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And yet what happens is, verse 23, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. This is the development of idolatry. And they begin to worship that in the creation rather than the Creator. And it doesn't have to be limited to some idol made of stone or wood or metal. It can be the worship of some sort of intellectual idea 
or process, uh, something um, abstract. Verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and served the creature rather than create the creator. This is the breakdown. And every single system of human thought, whether you're talking about Eastern mysticism, Eastern pantheism, whether you're talking about the pantheism, that uh, the monistic pantheism of the Greek philosophers, the pre-Socratics or uh, uh, Aristotle or Plato, or whether you're talking about the uh, various uh, nature religions that developed with uh, certain uh, people in both North American continent, Mesoamerica, South America, Africa, all of these systems, whatever they are, including the most sophisticated scientific theories today, all buy into a form of monistic pantheism, where the universe itself becomes God. Matter itself in some form becomes God itself, and so they are worshiping, they have deified something in the creation. And the consequence of that is that there are three stages of divine discipline, where God, as it were, just sort of pulls back the restraint. So you're going to uh, reject me, he says. Well, we're just going to take back a little bit of the control, and I'm going to give you over to the consequences of your rebellion. And so we see that these are signs of judgment from verse 24 on. That um, for this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged a natural use for what is against nature. So you have uh, lesbianism, homosexuality is all a consequence of God's judgment on a culture for their rejection of God. It's not that for which we will be judged. It is God's judgment on the culture. I'll probably be thrown in prison for that before long. This is going to be classified as hate speech, so save the tape. It's, it, it will uh, uh, not, not, you know, I, I understand. I've got to document this, but I understand there have been pastors who have either been arrested or threatened with arrest in Canada already because Canada has bought into this. Uh, you know, the modern Tower of Babel is the United Notions or United Nations, and, um, and their, their definition of hate speech uh, involves any any condemnation of certain kinds of behavior, and if uh, uh, and that includes homosexuality. So uh, this is becoming a problem. In fact, uh, there were several of us at the last conference I was in in Dallas who figured this is the next major battle, and this is um, uh, very likely we will see a time before we die when we will in this country lose the freedom to read Romans 1. Apparently, as I said, I want to document this, but I have heard uh, a couple of different sources that uh, uh, there have been pastors in Canada that have been arrested for uh, reading just reading Romans 1. This is divine judgment. And even as they, in verse 28, the third stage, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. You know, perversion, all manner of sins are listed after that. But I think it's interesting, verse 32 closes, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, see this is the, I pointed this out as part of, 
part of the, the world system is this is one element we, that man knows is very core that he's accountable to God and there will be, ju- will be judgment. Verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, see they know that these things are wrong, that they're deserving of death, nevertheless they go ahead and engage in those practices, but also approve of those who practice them. See, how many people in this country are actually homosexual? I think the number is probably less than 5%. But even if we take the most uh, liberal guess, it's 10%. May, actually, I've heard numbers as low as 2%. But what's happened is through the use of propaganda in the cosmic system is that you have vast numbers of people who are convinced that... Uh, because they have no biblical heritage anymore, no concept of absolutes, that it's okay to have a homosexual marriage. So they're convincing all of these heterosexuals to approve of their behavior. And see, I don't have a problem with the fact that this is a sin. I mean, uh, heterosexual immorality is just as much a sin as homosexual immorality. It's just a different manifestation of sin nature. It may not be... The trend of your sin nature, maybe your sin nature trends towards arrogance or bitterness or vindictiveness or gossip or whatever, and that's just not your your particular uh, favorite sin. But it's somebody else's favorite sin. Everybody's got different favorite sins, and we need to recognize that if somebody is uh, has that as their trend of their sin nature to be homosexual, then that's what it is. It's a trend of their sin nature. But I don't have to approve it anymore, and I have to approve of liars and murderers and thieves. You know, you can love the sinner, and it doesn't mean you have to approve the sin and say, well, you know, that really isn't a sin. So this is the backdrop of what happened historically in that period in those three or 400 years between Noah and Abraham. What this is is the establishment of the cosmic system. And this becomes solidified at the Tower of Babel. And so throughout the Bible, there is a battle that culminates eventually in Revelation between Jerusalem as the city of peace, which is what Jerusalem means based on shalom, the word for peace, and Babylon. Babel the confusion created by human viewpoint paganism. And this is the struggle that we have down through history. And it's not resolved until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back at the second advent. But, tower, but, the, but Babylon represents what the Bible calls worldliness or the world system. And this becomes solidified at Genesis 11 into all of its dynamics. It has a political structure, the tyranny of Nimrod. And let me tell you, every human viewpoint political system, and that means every system other than that which was originally designed by God in the theocracy of Israel. But see, that fell apart because the people rebelled against God's rulership. Every political system until the second advent is going to deteriorate into tyranny. 
eventually. So don't get, in this political system, don't get too excited and get too uh, divorced from reality and thinking that one party or another is going to provide the perfect solution. We are on a path of deterioration in this nation and have been, and there's a, there's a pattern of a cycle of nations that was first developed by a man named Alexander uh, Tyler back in the 18th century, and I need to bring that in and read through that, how a nation starts off in slavery, then they become free, and then they go through one cycle after another where they begin to, to uh, take, uh, take for granted their liberties, and eventually they end up in slavery again. But every political system is going to deteriorate. Why? Because it comes out of this cosmic thinking. Every economic system that we can develop and we may have political systems that at times exemplify the highest and best and are based on biblical absolutes. But there's never pure. There's always elements within those political systems that come out of carnality, come out of the flesh, and will eventually eat up the rest of it. Same thing with economic system. Capitalism is the most consistent, that is most consistent with biblical revelation. But if you, especially if you read uh, Adam Smith, it's a recognition of, of, the, of greed, and greed is considered a major mechanism within capitalism. It's a recognition of but greed is part of the sin nature. So you're going to have problems in, in capitalism, uh, whether it's a political system, whether it's an economic system, uh, social systems. They're all going to deteriorate because of the sin nature. And the Bible talks about the fact that we have three enemies. The world, the flesh, which is our own sin nature, and the devil. Now, Satan is the archenemy of God and the enemy of every believer. and He is a legitimate personality. And he is the highest, was created the highest and greatest of all the angels until he chose to disobey God. And it is in that act of disobedience, as revealed in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, that we see the kind of thinking that is systematized in the world system. And the kind of thinking that is systematized in the world system provides a rationale for the operation of our sin nature. So these three work together. And as a believer, see, we are called to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to resist the devil, and to not be conformed to the world. So this is foundational to our spiritual life. And we see principles in this with Abraham, because Abraham is going to be called out to be a counter-movement to the cosmic system. And so this will be one of the major themes that we emphasize as I go through Abraham is how God is going to use Abraham and his descendants as a counter to the cosmic system. But before we get into all of that, we have to understand this term, cosmic uh, thinking, the cosmic system. And I spell it with a K because I'm not talking about the universe, which is the English sense of the word cosmos with a C. I'm talking about its Greek root, cosmos, and that re- relates to the human viewpoint or pagan systems that have generated against man. So let's just review this 
in our rest of our time this morning. First John 2.15 is a crucial text for understanding the world system. John writes, Do not love the world, that is the cosmic system, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the cosmic system, then the love of the Father, and that's a subjective, or excuse me, that is a, an objective genitive, love for the Father, is not in him. In other words, you can't love the world and God at the same time. This is the same thing that James writes about in James chapter uh, James chapter four. There, James says, "Do you not know that friendship with the world, that is the cosmic system, is enmity or hostility with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the cosmic system makes himself an enemy of God." These are mutually exclusive ways of thinking. Now, you know, and I know, that when you have people who think differently, uh, let's say you, let's take a, a socialist and a fascist. We don't want to get, we don't want to take a Republican and a Democrat. That's too personal. We'll take a fascist and a, and a socialist. Now, they won't think the same way. I mean, you think about the Nazis where the, na- the term Nazi refers to the national socialistische, uh, Arbeiters Partei in Germany, and that was abbreviated to Nazi. And they were, they, were, um, they were socialists. They weren't communists. They hated the communists. And, and they did everything they could to destroy the, uh, the, the Marxists. And that's why you know, everybody was so surprised when Hitler entered into a peace treaty there in 1939 with, uh, with uh, uh, Stalin. But that was just a Machiavellian move, so he would get Stalin off his back so he could invade uh, Poland, but you, you, these two systems are mutually exclusive. They can they can agree on some things. There's a certain overlap between communism and socialism in terms of looking to the government to solve problems and the government uh, government control of the economy. But there are other elements that differ. But there's still, even though there is elements of commonality, the total overall structure is different. So that there. The systems are antithetical to one another. And that's as far as I want to go with that illustration. I'm just, what I'm saying is that you can have somebody who is a, who is, is uh, not a believer or even a believer in operating on certain political, economic, and social philosophies that have a lot of overlap with biblical truth. But that doesn't mean they're biblical. Okay? The system is as important as the details within the system. So that you can, you can meet some people out there who, who are very conservative. You can meet a Mormon. Mormon's going to be very conservative. He's going to be conservative economically. He's going to be conservative, uh, morally and ethically. Uh, he's going to be, uh, conservative about his religion in some ways. But yet there's an awful lot we don't agree with with Mormons. Just because you find somebody that agrees with you doesn't mean that they have the same system. So the, that, the reason I say that is because we all grow up in mature thinking within some system. Every one of you. Some of you had a very disorganized system. Others of you had a very organized system. But it's still a system. A sloppy, disorganized system is still a system. Okay? Look at my desk sometime. 
I know where things are. Nobody else does. It's a work in progress. Uh, other people, you can you, you never see a piece of paper out of place. They, of course, I don't think they get any work done. The principle that I'm making is in your spiritual life, when you get saved, even though there may be a lot of things that you believed before you were saved that are the same after you're saved, that are, are biblical, when you believed them before, you didn't believe them because they were biblical. That was just part of your cosmic thinking. You might believe that, uh, you might believe in marriage, you might be moral, you might, uh, uh, believe in, uh, conservative fiscal policies, you might not be a person that, that believes in getting into debt or gambling, any number of things, and then you become a Christian, you think, wow, I don't have to change a whole lot. Yeah, you really do, because all that thinking wasn't biblical. I'm making sense. It didn't come out of a biblical framework. It came out of a pagan conservative framework. That's not the same thing. And so what you have to do is go in and rebuild everything. And this is the concept of cosmic thinking in the Scripture, why we're not to be conformed to the world. See, Christianity isn't easy. It just isn't memorizing a couple of Bible verses and singing a bunch of praise choruses and going home and saying, oh, wasn't it good to be a church tonight? I just feel so much better. See, you've got you to really change the way you think. I've said it many times. One of the reasons that we don't have an impact today as Christians on the culture around us is because we're superficial in our thinking. And you go back two or three hundred years to the Puritans in the 16th century, 15th, 16th century, 17th century, and they really worked out the implications of their Christian thought. In many ways. Now, that doesn't mean we would agree with everything or that they were right in everything. But they certainly tried to explore the depths of the uh, intellectual ramifications of their Christian beliefs in ways that evangelicals are afraid to today. And that's what laid the intellectual foundations for the freedoms of this country, is what they, they developed and what they, what they understood. But we have to fight this thing for the cosmos. So what's the cosmos? did it. I'm having a computer problem. We've been trying to figure out what this problem is. And yeah, I think my... I, yeah, there's a demon in the motherboard. I think the motherboard just... The motherboard just, just bought it. I was having this problem last week coming back on the airplane. And every, every time I'd start up and start typing, it, it did that. It just blacked out. And I haven't been able to reduplicate it for a week, and I did this afternoon, and it's been doing it some more. So anyway, you don't get to watch the overhead, so we'll just go through the principles. First of all, cosmos. Cosmos, in, the, in, in its negative sense, has to do with an arrangement or system of thinking that is uh, arrayed against God. The basic meaning of cosmos is system. We talked about that last time. It has the idea of an order, an arrangement, an adornment of some. It's where we get our English word cos, cosmetics or cosmology when a woman or, or orders her face. Uh, point number two, Satan is the ruler of the cosmic system. And that doesn't mean Satan invented cosmetics. Now, there were, <laughs> there have been Christians who have been so silly. And they had very unattractive women. I don't know what happened in between about the 1940s and 1970s, but if you went out there in charismatic circles, none of their none of the Pentecostal women. You remember they all wore beehive hairdos and no makeup. 
And all of a sudden they showed up on TBM wearing so much, so much makeup that, that people were, were asking a question, you know what Tammy Faye Baker has in common with the ski slope at Aspen, Colorado? 20 inches of base and 10 inches of powder. <laughs> False eyelashes and why do they always build these sets that look like they're some kind of French cat house out of New Orleans, you know? And they and they think that that honors God. It's just amazing. Anyway, point number two: Satan is the ruler of the cosmic system. As such, a cosmic cosmic thinking reflects the kind of thinking exemplified by Satan at the time of his fall. John 12.31 says, Now judgment is upon this world, that is the cosmos, the cosmic thinking. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. Satan is the ruler of this world. John John 12.31, John 14.30. See, when Satan fell, he exemplified these basic characteristics of a arrogance that he wanted to be independent of God. There is a certain fear in the creature that exerts his authority against God, just like when you were a child and you wanted to exert your disobedience against your parents. Deep down in your soul, there was a fear working. And that motivates your third element, which is antagonism. Because you hate what what makes you feel diminished and fearful. Okay? That's all evidence in Satan's thinking. Uh, point number three, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and is in, and thus is under his influence in cosmic thinking. First John 5:19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world, the whole cosmic system lies in the power of the evil one. Point number four, Satan as the ruler of the cosmic system was judged on the cross. John 16:11 concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So p- cosmic thinking has been has been judged or condemned by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You see this is the counterpoint. Cosmic thinking asserts independence from God. Jesus submitted himself to God. It is fearful of God. Jesus loves God the Father and Cosmic thinking is antagonistic to God, and Jesus Christ totally fulfilled everything God planned. He, he fulfilled that plan no matter what it cost him. He was obedient to the point of death. So that's the counterpoint. And in his death, Jesus Christ demonstrates what this, this counterpoint in the angelic conflict, and that condemns Satan's agenda. And that's what the cosmic system is. You can think of it that way. It is the expression of Satan's agenda. Point number five. The cosmic system has its own way of thinking. It has a a, a way of thinking. It may be manifest in a number of different ways. Earlier I talked about some of these. Whether you're talking about Eastern mysticism, Buddhism, Hinduism, whether you're talking about... uh, Ancient mythologies, whether Greek, Mesopotamian, Egyptian, uh, Aztec, whatever it may be, Norwegian, Scandinavian, they're all manifestations of the same basic arrogance and hostility towards God. In cosmic thinking, you have an ultimate view of reality. And 
all these systems of thought, all these religious systems can all be boiled down to one basic view of reality. Now, philosophy calls that metaphysics. It's that which is beyond the physical. And that's at the very root of all kinds of, of any kind of thinking is metaphysics. What do you think about God? What's the ultimate reality that out, that's out there? For Aristotle, it was the unmoved mover or the prime mover. It's not personal, though. It's just something that isn't moved. It's not the Christian God, and they made a tremendous mistake uh, in the early, uh, early part of the church age trying to identify uh, Aristotle's unmoved mover or prime mover with the Christian God. It's not. As a result of that, a lot of ancient Greek pagan philosophy slipped into Christianity. But your ultimate view of metaphysics affects your view of knowledge because your ultimate view of reality affects how you understand how you know things. And how you know things, in turn, shapes your views of values, that which is an ought or a should, you know, the way things ought to be, the way things should be, what's right, what's wrong. Ethics is your foundation for law. So if you're not starting from a biblical viewpoint, you're starting from any kind of pantheistic or panentheistic monism, some form of, of materialistic monism, whatever that starting point is, it's going to have, it's going to work itself out in a different view of law than if you're starting with the idea that God is the creator separate from the, totally separate from his creation, speaks and defines what right and wrong is. And you're going to end up with two different things. So that what happens in a pagan system is you're inside of a circle. Because everything in all of creation is inside the circle of reality. This is why I kept going over that stuff about the continuity of being. It's all in this thing, whatever being is. It's impersonal. It may be mechanical, maybe material, but everything's in here. There's no external reference point, so inside being itself generates its own values. So you have one group over here, and they generate this set of values, and another group over here generates this set of values, and another group over here generates this set of values. Whose values dominate? See, this is where you end up in, in when, when, it, when this kind of thinking goes to seed, you end up with, with what we have now in postmodernism, where they're all of equal value. You know, the sodomites' values are just as good as the, uh, well, they're not as good as the Christian, because that's one value system that's no longer acceptable. But they're as good as the, as the uh, Islamic terrorist value system. Poor little Islamic terrorist, he's just mad at us because, because, uh, the West has done something to him. Um, or you have, you have some aboriginal tribe down in uh, uh, Africa or India and uh, some Hindu. His value system is just as good. But see, how do you determine which value system is going to dominate? You have conflict. Eventually, there's going to be conflict. And that indicates that one has to demonstrate its superiority over the other, and that will always end up in some form of tyranny because there's no objective standard anymore for determining which value system's right. It's just who's more powerful than the other person. And so you get into power politics. And this is why you have this stuff coming up today with feminism, and this radical feminism is, is at the heart of all this 
uh, thought that's gurgling around at the base of what makes the Da Vinci Code so popular. And we've gone through that, and I'll probably do it again before long, uh, because it is such a postmodern interpretation of history and religion, elevating the feminine. So you have... uh, and, and it, it, you get a power play between all these minority groups. You have the feminists, you have the homosexuals, you have minority groups, whatever it may be. And it's just power, power, power. And so the ultimate value ends up being power, and ultimately it deteriorates into some form of tyranny. Over against this, you have an absolute standard that comes from the character of God. So cosmic thinking cosmic system has its own way of thinking, even though it may express itself in various different kinds of systems. You don't have a hundred systems out there. You only have two, the Bible and human viewpoint. Point number six, man has always sought to establish his authority for his knowledge apart from revelation. He's always sought to find his authority for truth apart from revelation, either in terms of reason or experience, or mysticism. But reason, experience, and mysticism are set over against revelation so that rationalism is used to denigrate the Bible. Empiricism is used to try to destroy biblical truth. It never does. Uh, It always destroys itself in history. Uh, This is not to say that there's something wrong with empiricism or rationalism, But empiricism and rationalism must operate under the authority of Scripture. That sets the boundaries. Point number seven. A way of thinking, that is, whatever mode of cosmic thinking you adopt, produces a lifestyle that is consistent with it. So every cosmic form is going to produce certain lifestyles that are consistent with it. And we call those lifestyles culture. So you have a Shinto culture develop in Japan. You have a Hindu culture develop in India. You have a Buddhist culture develop in, in, uh, in, in China. You have animistic, spiritist cultures develop in Africa. You have uh, uh, rationalistic cultures develop in Western civilization. What have I just said? I said the core of culture is what? Religion. The core of every culture is the idea of religion. And what made Western European history different was Christianity changed the dynamic. If it hadn't been for the infusion of Christianity and Bible doctrine in the early church age, which changed the trend of Western Europe, Western Europe would have been just as animistic and just as pagan as everybody else. It's still... It still had a lot of elements of paganism, but what made it different was those elements of Christianity. Point number eight, the elements of cosmic thinking. There are three elements of cosmic thinking. I've gone over this before. And those elements are, first of all, arrogance. It is creaturely-centered. Second, there is real fear. At the very core of the soul, there's this sense of dread. Not fear of the Lord in the sense of respect for the Lord, but dread of judgment. And that, in turn, motivates antagonism. 
hatred for the Word of God and the desire to destroy Christianity and the Word of God and the truth of the Word of God. This is why James says in James 4.4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? They are not compatible at all. Therefore, point nine, the believer is to extricate himself from the morass of cosmic thinking in his soul. Your soul, at the point of your salvation, and maybe to some degree, to a larger degree today, is loaded with cosmic thinking. And it's your job as a believer to be re-educated. This is the point of Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, that is, to the cosmic system or the modes of cosmic thinking, but be transformed by the renovation of your thinking, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is the mission. So what God is going to do through Abraham is that at the end of Genesis 11, the world is in a state of collapse. It's almost in the same condition as it was in before the flood, minus the demonic uh, infiltration. And there are just a few people who are believers. It was about that time, probably a little earlier than Job, I mean a little earlier than Abraham, that you had Job. Job never mentions... Israel or Jerusalem or Abraham or anything like that. So most scholars believe Job is the earliest book written in the Bible. And it is located, Job lives in the land of Uz, and we saw that Uz was one of the descendants of, of Shem. But it doesn't give us any more specifics than that. So we know that there were a few other believers, but not many. But they've rejected the God that delivered Noah from the ark. And their worship and idolatry is rampant. In fact, Abram comes out of a family of moon worshipers. And they are into astrology and all manner of paganism. And yet, uh, he is a believer and God calls him out for a special task to set up a counter culture against the, what has happened in terms of the cosmic system. So this sets the stage for getting into Abram next time. And next time what I'll do is we will cover uh, the whole of the life of Abraham in one class to give you that overview, which is what I've been doing in Genesis, is to start off with an overview of a section so that then we understand where things are going, what the key events are, what the key doctrines are, and then we can start getting into it in detail and then come at at it at the end with another summary, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by what it says, to have a greater understanding of history, to realize that our task uh, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, the teaching of the word, is to have our thinking overhauled so that we are not conformed to the thought forms of the cosmic system, but to that of the uh, Word of God. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.